0: 14 again. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. In this text, the Apostle Paul shows that he desired for the cross to be his exclusive boast. He desires for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to be his exclusive boast. His boasting in the cross, first of all, refers to what the cross did for him. But then he goes on and he speaks of two other crucifixions. The first of those two is where Paul expresses what the cross did in him. And in the last crucifixion, he expresses what the cross did to him. And this morning, my desire by the power of God is to convince you That you need to be like Paul in desiring, prayerfully desiring that your exclusive boast be in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This text, properly understood, is a call to a very high level of discipleship. The implication here is not only should we consider what Paul wrote, but to consider his example and to follow his example. Do you recall that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says to the Corinthians, be followers or be imitators of me. Paul did not teach merely by preaching and teaching. Or by writing letters, he taught by example. And we need to understand this as we come to this text. First of all, we're going to consider how Paul boasted in what the cross did for him. I think it's good for us to consider what does Paul mean by the cross? He's not actually referring to that wooden structure on which The Lord Jesus was executed. Now, the cross is a reference to his atoning work. The cross is a reference to the atoning death of Christ, but also it includes all that the atoning work of Christ accomplished. We have this expression at the beginning of verse 14. God forbid. That's not a literal translation. It's what's sometimes called a dynamic equivalence. God forbid. Back in the old English, back in the 1600s, that was an expression of great abhorrence. A literal translation would be like what's in the New American Standard. May it never be. The ESV has... Far be it from me. NIV. May I never. I think probably the best way I know how to put it in contemporary terms is something like perish the thought. Perish the thought that I should boast except in the cross. Paul here is expressing His abhorrence at the thought that the cross would not be his exclusive boast. This expression, may it never be, was indeed an expression of abhorrence. I think we also need to think briefly upon what did Paul mean when he talked about boasting. This is an interesting word. Because sometimes it's translated in such a sense, it's boast. In other words, the way that we think of bragging. So there's that negative sense. But it can also be understood in a very positive sense. Sometimes it's translated to rejoice. Let me give you an example of a negative use from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Probably a very familiar verse with most, if not all of you. The apostle wrote, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, lest anyone should boast about or brag about their accomplishments. And actually, if you look just at the previous two verses, notice what we see in verse verse 12. For as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they might not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast. It's the same word that they may boast In your flesh. They want to brag about convincing Gentiles that they need to be circumcised. But it's also used frequently, even as I believe Paul does now in verse 13, in a very positive way. If you look at verse 4 of the same chapter, where we read, Let each one examine his own work, then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in the other. The word there that's translated rejoicing is the noun form of the verb that Paul uses in verse 13. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. What is Paul's point here? What does he mean by boasting in the cross? He is saying that for him, the cross is a source of intense joy. It's a source of intense joy. Not just an item on the checklist of orthodoxy. Is that what the cross is to you? Is it just an item on the checklist of orthodoxy? You say, oh, yes, I believe in limited atonement. Check mark. For Paul, the cross was a source of intense joy. I think it's good that our translators kept the word boast there in verse 13. I'll be explaining the contrast between Paul's boasting and that of the Judaizers in just a moment. But one of the things when we think about boasting, we, we tend to think of the idea of, of vocalness. And I believe that you and I need to be more vocal in our rejoicing In the cross. Understand everything that I'm saying here about your desire to boast exclusively in the cross cannot happen by just you merely willing to do that. Just determining that you will do that. This is something that only God can work into your heart in the same way that he worked it into the Apostle Paul's heart. Now. If you read through the New Testament, you'll find that there's other places where Paul talks about rejoicing. And you might think, well, is he contradicting himself here? He's saying he rejoices in this here. He rejoices in this here. Here he says he wants the cross to be his exclusive boast. Is he contradicting himself? The answer is no. He is not. Because every time you find him rejoicing, and something other than specifically being the cross it can be traced back to the cross it can be traced back to the cross 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 this is what the apostle wrote for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing where their rejoicing is the noun form of the verb in our text is it not even you in the presence of our lord jesus christ at his coming For you are our glory and joy. See, what's happening here is Paul is rejoicing in the saving effects of the cross. The saving effects of the atonement of Christ in the lives of believers. Paul saw everything through the cross. He saw everything through the cross. And because of that, He could have the prayerful desire to boast exclusively in the cross. The cross is a very vast concept. Every blessing that you enjoy, every God-given privilege that you have, has come to you through the cross. Not just your spiritual blessings, but also your material blessings as well. Every blessing, every privilege that you enjoy as a believer was purchased for you by the blood of Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Every blessing, every privilege that you have has been purchased for you by the blood of your Savior. But there's something that you should especially rejoice in when it comes to the cross. and that it, God is that is that God sees you through the cross. He sees you through. The cross of the Lord Jesus. Paul actually in the book of Galatians gives several reasons for why believers should be motivated to boast exclusively in the cross. The first of these is actually presented in verse 15. Notice what the apostle wrote. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Apart from regeneration. Apart from regeneration. There's no way that a person can rejoice in the cross. They might think that they're rejoicing. That might be in some cult. That might be in some false religion. But truly, a person cannot rejoice in the cross unless that person is regenerated. Notice the little conjunction for at the beginning of verse 15. He's connecting verse 15 to what proceeds. Regeneration is something that would produce and should produce a desire to boast exclusively in the cross. But also, before a person can truly rejoice in the cross, that person needs to understand what they were before they believed and what they are now in Christ that they believed. Now, everything I'm about to share with you comes right out of the book of Galatians. Before you believed, you were a guilty sinner. Galatians 3.22, where the apostle writes, The Scripture has confined all under sin. Before you believed, you were a sinner under the curse of God. Galatians 3:13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us Before you were a believer you were a hell-bound sinner Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 Now the works of, of the flesh are evident which are Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you before, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. I've been debating whether or not I would share this with you. I saw an article in which Hannah Brown, who's the star on the program The Bachelorette, I mean, if you don't know that, that's more That's great. But on this program she has been made, has made bold statements about her Christian faith and what shocked people especially evangelical Christians when she said it's okay for Christians to enjoy premarital sex people began to think what what I tried to find out what church she was a part of. I couldn't. But let me say this. The text that I just read mentions fornication. <laughs> I have been shocked to find out that she's not alone. She's not alone. There's other people, young people, who profess to be Christians, and they have no problem with sleeping with their love interest. And the sad thing about it, I was at a church recently where one of the couples in the church, actually two of the couples in the church, were living together unmarried. And people were wondering, well, why would the elders bring church discipline against them? I mean, after all, they're going to get married, so what's, what's the big deal? <coughs> I guess the reason why I thought maybe that'd be worth mentioning is because this lady, Hannah Brown, did I say lady? I guess I did. This Christian young woman, Hannah Brown, I don't blame her exclusively for her attitude. She's still responsible. But it seems to me that whatever church she's in or was in or just hasn't taught against sin. Paul makes it abundantly clear there in those verses we just read from Galatians 5 that fornication if someone practices that they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God and I only put this in my sermon notes because to show that yes there's two eternal destinies one is the kingdom of God the other is the lake of fire but understand Through the cross of Christ, you have been redeemed so that you now have an eternal destiny in heaven. Now here's something else to think about. Before you believed, you were a loved sinner. Before you believed, as one of God's elect. God had already set his love upon you. Christ had already set his love upon you. Galatians chapter 20, I mean, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul there describes Jesus as the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ he says, is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. The sense is he loved me, and as a result, as a result, he gave himself for me. Christ did not redeem you so that he could love you, Christ redeemed you because He already did love you. Which means that now that you're in Christ, you're still a loved sinner. But now that you have believed, you're a justified sinner. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. We have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. You're also a sinner who is being sanctified. That's why Paul points these believers to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 through 23. He writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If the Spirit is in you, the Spirit is producing this fruit. But Paul also makes it very clear that you are an adopted sinner. Galatians 4.5, Paul explains to us that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And Paul expands on this. Same chapter, but in verses 1-5 through five of Galatians 4, Paul describes believers as heirs and adopted sons. That means that you are a secure sinner. You are a secure sinner. What does that mean? Why would I say that? Because Paul was a Roman citizen and he knew Roman law very well. And according to Roman law, an adopted son could never be disinherited. A natural son could be disinherited, but an adopted son could not be disinherited. So we can understand why Paul would boast in what the cross did for him. He understood what he was outside of Christ and what he became in Christ. Just as you need to think about what the cross did for you as well. But Paul moves on. Notice what he says next. By whom, and that should be by which, By which the world has been crucified to me. By which the world has been crucified to me. As I said, Paul here is describing the internal work that happened as a result of the cross. When he says to me, the sense is here is as far as I am concerned, The world has been crucified to him. Have you ever heard of somebody wearing rose-colored glasses? This might be an old expression. Maybe I'm dating myself. But what's meant by that? Well, that person just wears rose-colored glasses. The idea is because of the tint on those lenses, They see everything in a positive way. They don't see reality. They do not actually see the way that things are. But understand this. Paul saw the world as it really is. Because he wore blood colored glasses. That's why he was able to see the world as it really is. He says, by which the world has been crucified to me. The Apostle John defines the world according to three categories in 1 John 2 and verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The world refers to every sinful thing on this planet that appeals to your flesh, to your eyes, and to your pride. What's the flesh? Paul here, or actually John is not referring to what covers our bones, of course. The flesh refers to our sinful nature. The flesh is like a hungry monster that wants to devour all that the world offers as a means of satisfying its lustful cravings for sinful pleasures. When the world is crucified to you by the cross, The things in the world that would feed your flesh are taken away. Rejoicing in the cross cuts the world off from you and starves your flesh. The next category, the lust of the eyes. That, of course, would refer to everything that would visually tempt you. I think when we think of the lust of the eyes, men probably think about, pornography Um, sadly there are even men in the ministry that struggle with that there have been men in the I know the PCA that have been deposed because they have been caught viewing pornography but sometimes the lust of the eyes might be something as simple as a lady walking into a house and coveting The furniture and the appliances. There's some dear friends of mine. The wife would go into the home of one of her girlfriends and see the furnishings and see the appliances and wonder, well, why can't I have that? And she would plead with her husband, can't we buy this piece of furniture? Can't we buy this appliance? My friend told me that there were times he had to shut, shut his wife down. had to shout her down because she, he'd have to say, we just can't afford it. That's also the lust of the eyes. Looking at something that you want to have, but you can't afford it. But also the pride of life refers to every sinful thing in this world that appeals to your ego. And that includes the pride itself. If your exclusive boast is in the cross of Christ. Then everything that would be a sinful source of pride for you goes right down to the garbage disposal. If a preacher boasts in his eloquence, or if a teacher boasts in his insights into the Bible, or if a layperson just boasts in his good conduct, in each case, where those have become a source of pride, each one of those must be understood to be in the realm of the world to be crucified with it. The extent to which you rejoice in the cross is the extent to which you minimize yourself and weaken the attractions of the sinful things in this world. If you fail to confess Christ to the world by your life and words from fear of what others will think of you, can you honestly say that you've crucified the world to yourself? If you rejoice in the cross instead of giving in to the greedy lust of the eyes, let me rephrase this, if you rejoice in the cross instead of giving in to the flesh, you will be characterized by moral purity. If you rejoice in the cross instead of giving in to the greedy lust of the eyes, you will be characterized by contentment. If you rejoice in the cross, instead of giving in to pride, you will be characterized by humility. You see the connection between rejoicing in the cross and sanctification? You see the connection between rejoicing in the cross And your growth in grace. This is why Paul desired for the cross to be his exclusive boast. Not only because of what the cross had done for him. But because of what the cross had done in him. But then this last crucifixion where he says, And I to the world. When he says to the world, he means as far as the world is concerned, I've been crucified by the cross. But Paul is actually describing here about crucifying the world to himself and the world crucifying him to itself. He's describing the mutual contempt that Paul had for the world and that the world had for him. John Gill, the English Baptist pastor, also was a great scholar of the 18th century, points out that the Syriac and the Arabic versions translate the last part of this verse to express that Paul was despised by the world. And I believe that's exactly correct. Paul's intense joy in the cross is something that is contrasted in this section with the boasting of the Judaizers. I want you to look at verse 12. Well, first of all, notice how verse 14 begins. It begins with "but." "but." Look at verse 13. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh, but God forbid that I should boast. You see the contrast here. Paul is contrasting the attitude and the action of these Judaizers with his own boasting. In verse 12, he explains that these Judaizers sought to compel the Galatians to be circumcised so that they, the Judaizers, would not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now, if you think about that, if they boasted in the flesh of the Galatians, if they were successful in convincing them to be circumcised, which means they would keep the entire Mosaic law, What happened to Paul who boasted in the cross? The one who was seeking to avoid persecution. Paul was expecting to be persecuted because of his boasting in the cross. Who were these Judaizers? These Judaizers were Jews who professed faith in Christ. And they attempted to convince Gentile believers that they needed to take on a totally Jewish lifestyle in order to be justified before God. To Judaize means to make Jewish. Have you ever heard about finalizing something? That means to make it final. You ever heard about sanitizing something? That means to make it sanitary. So it's the same kind of thing even we use... um, In English, so to Judaize us, it means to make Jewish. That's what these Judaizers were attempting to do. They were adding works of the law to faith in Christ. They wouldn't deny that faith in Christ is important. They would say, oh, you see, Paul didn't tell you the whole truth. Faith by itself isn't sufficient. You also have to keep... The Mosaic Law. You see, these Judaizers boasted in the circumcision of these Galatian believers if they were successful because it implied that they had turned these Gentiles into legal zealots like themselves. By boasting in the circumcision of these Gentile believers, these Judaizers escaped persecution from unbelieving Jews because they were in essence turning Gentiles into Jewish proselytes. That's how they would have been viewed. And so that's how a lot of Jews then, unbelieving Jews, view these Judaizers. Oh, well, they're just making (coughs) Gentiles into Jewish proselytes. But notice... They were boasting in the circumcision of Gentile believers so that they would escape the persecution of unbelieving Jews. Paul, in contrast, boasted in the cross. And because of that, He suffered persecution from unbelieving Jews, Judaizers, and unbelieving Gentiles. Paul wasn't afraid to vocally rejoice in the cross, even though it would cost him suffering. Do you believe that Paul ever suffered for the gospel? you think that Paul just, you know, let's just be real careful and we'll keep it quiet? and No someone once said, every time Paul went to a city, read this in Acts, there was either a revival or a riot. Now, he did suffer. He suffered much. Unbelieving Gentiles hated Paul, made him an object of ridicule, because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, preaching of the cross is foolishness to Gentiles. To unsaved Jews, Paul was an apostate. He was one who denied the true Jewish faith. And so the world hated and ridiculed Paul because it ridicules and hates the cross of Christ. 1 John chapter 3, and verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter five, verses three through four. And not only that, but we also glory by the word. The word translated glory is the same one that's in our text. It's translated boasting. We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character. whole. Much of the tribulation that the Apostle Paul suffered was in the form of persecutions which he received from unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. But the Lord used those persecutions to produce in Paul perseverance, character, and hope. He used Those persecutions to produce in Paul perseverance, character, and hope. In other words, those persecutions were a part of what the Lord used in his sanctification. Do you desire to be sanctified? Further and further sanctified. If you do truly desire to be sanctified. Then I suggest that you lift up the cross of Christ to a Christ hating world. You are to cause the world to see you through the cross by your life and by your words. The text that we've considered this morning presents three crucifixions, but only one cross. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in this one cross that the Apostle prayerfully desired to have his exclusive boast. That cross was like a window It allowed Paul to see what he had been outside of Christ and what he was now in Christ. It was also a window through which he saw the world and every single sinful thing in it. And he saw it as contemptible and repulsive. And when the world looked at him through the cross, he was contemptible and repulsive to it. How is it with you this morning? Is it your desire that the cross be your exclusive boast? Or is there some area of fleshly lust, visual enticement, egotistical pursuit that you have not recognized to be in the realm of the world to be crucified with it? Have you failed to see yourself through the cross, both concerning what you were before you believed and what you are now, that you are in Christ? Have you rejoiced or have you failed to rejoice in the cross to such an extent that the world is repulsive and contemptible to you? Have you allowed the world to see you through the cross by your actions and by your words so that it regards you as contemptible and repulsive? May Christ Himself give you the the grace to declare with the Apostle Paul "But God forbid... That I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray.